Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. I'm your host, Samuel Elliott. This evening, I had the immense good fortune of speaking to a writer and journalist, uh, Shannon Malloy. Shannon Malloy joined me to discuss his debut memoir, 14. 14 is the titular age in which he grew up in Yapoon, which is a small town in Queensland. And I must tell you, this is hands down the most confronting, uh, emotionally devastating interview in which I've ever hosted or held, uh, purely because Shannon, uh, Shannon's story, his, candor, his character, uh, and what he endured and went through in order to get to where he is now, talking to me is nothing short of horrific. Uh, but that being said, Shannon definitely talked at length about the light within the darkness and the light often in the forms of the dedicated teachers, professionals, friends, family members that uh, were really all in their own special way instrumental in kind of bringing him through to the other side of this and essentially ensuring that by his own words uh, saved his life and ensured that he got here to talk to me today. Um, I can't stress just how devastating it was, but also uplifting to hear Shannon's story and his perseverance throughout, even the optimism that did occasionally gutter, obviously, just in the the trauma in which he endured. Uh, Nevertheless, he prevailed, and I'm so glad that he did so and came here to talk to me today. I must also give a bit of a prelude and a bit of a warning. There's going to be some incredibly traumatic subjects discussed. Uh, So homophobia, self-harm, suicide, uh, violence, homophobic violence, nothing's off the table. I just want to give a trigger warning now. I have also included the Lifeline website on the description of this episode. Uh, Please, if anything in which you listen to has prompted any sort of feelings, do contact Lifeline. There's various other professional services that are available on their website as well. Uh, I can't stress that to do that enough. Shannon's also provided a wealth of different sort of professionals and contacts within the acknowledgements of his book 14. So please also check that out as well when you get a copy. Uh, But in the interim, please give a big digital round of applause for a very special episode of the program talking to Shannon Malloy about his memoir 14. Shannon Malloy, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going this evening? I'm well. I'm so excited to be here. Long time listener, first time caller, I guess. I know you are. You are. You are. You are. You were like, you were, um, you were an ally from the get-go. You were giving me some, you know, some real nice feedback and liking my stuff. And I really appreciate it because it's still, the podcast is still relatively in its infancy. So, you know, I really, really need those kind of likes and stuff like that. I greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Excellent. Look, I wanted to hear from you first and foremost in your words uh, describing Yapoon. Is it pronounced Yapoon? Yapoon. 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 You forgive me. I'm, I'm not from Queensland. Yapoon. I wanted to hear from in your words Yapoon as a town because obviously it's got a KFC and there are some really, I must say, I don't know if you get this a lot, but there's some really lovely passages that really resonated with me first and foremost about KFC. Uh, so I really enjoyed hearing those but anyway to cut the shot so what just describe Yapon for me in your own words Shannon, the, the place that you kind of spend such a agonizing time in well it's this it's this very beautiful little part of the world it's about halfway up the Queensland coast uh, it's it's right on the coast uh near Rockhampton which is probably the town that anyone who's driven through Queensland would know the beef capital of Australia uh, and Yapoon, when I grew there, grew up there, was maybe about thirteen to fifteen thousand people, so not overly big. Mm. Uh, three blocks of the main street, 
the local family-owned grocery store, an ice creamery, a KFC, uh, and that's about it. Uh, so not a, not a great deal to do, uh, but plenty of places to eat and get a frozen Coke, which is pretty much how I spent my time there. Uh, but, but a very pretty town on the surface. The beach is stunning. There's a massive national park to the north, uh, lots and lots of crown protected land uh, and, and just a beautiful spot to, to spend a few days in. But to grow up there was, was, was an entirely different story. Uh, there was this sort of dark undertone to, to Yapoon that most kids, I think, felt. Uh, because in the 90s, when I grew up there, it was, it was in sort of an economic slump the mining families that tended to settle there, you know, dad was out of work. There were lots of issues with, uh, with alcohol abuse, a little bit of domestic violence. And so kids kind of ran wild through the streets at all hours of, of the day and night. Uh, and so that's the period of time I found myself in in Yapoon. Mm. And continuing along the same vein uh, with Yapoon, can you describe to me if you were writing a novel and this wasn't uh, your actual life, but if you were going to describe this young Shannon orbiting this this kind of world, what, how would you describe him? Oh, gosh. Uh, the kid that everyone knew but nobody knew anything about. Uh, I, I was kind of infamous in Yapoon. Everybody knew the name Shannon Malloy and, and everyone had a story that they'd heard about me or a little nugget of truth that they'd witnessed and then kind of embellished with their own, uh, with their own flourishes. Um, I, I, was, I was the outcast, uh, but yet the topic of everyone's conversation. So this very strange uh, sort of position to find myself in uh, and, and literally the only gay in the village or the only gay that, that anyone sort of had, had picked. I didn't really uh, appreciate that I was gay and, and didn't even know what it meant, but, um, but everyone else did. And, and that made me this, this sort of target, I suppose, of, uh, of gossip, of ridicule, uh, of a lot of physical violence at the all boys school that I went to, which was this sort of NRL mad, hyper-masculine, you know, blokes, blokes school with a lot of boarding school kids from, from the bush. So boys that had grown up on, you know, cow, cow cattle stations and, and not spent a great deal of time with other kids uh, suddenly thrust into this, this sort of, you know, powder keg of a scenario. Uh, and, and there was me, this, this quiet uh, but easily excitable boy who loved pop music and writing and, uh, creativity and fashion and the idea of traveling the world and spending time in Europe and, you know, daydreamt about big cities and poetry talks and, you know, fabulous dinners out. Uh, so uh, to say that I didn't fit in would, would be a massive understatement. Yeah, I mean, you, you did mention about obviously going away um, to Brisbane and that was kind of like this uh, also like this, this sort of uh, need, like a survival uh, method of survival really to get away just for this, you know, this brief sort of respite from it all because it was just, it was just so unrelenting. I wanted to ask, there was one section towards the beginning, but then you kind of also harken back towards the end with, the, with guys getting to a certain age and then they would, they would turn angry. And, and I wondered how much you think that this was intrinsically about or, or this kind of culture of rampant homophobia was tied into this notion of uh, this, this climate of, of aggression and where that sort of stemmed from in your sort of personal lived experience and witness. 
I think it was a big part of it. It's sort of, and it still happens. One of the mm. things that I've noticed uh, since the book has come out, I've done a lot of school talks, which was kind of never really my intention, but um, but it's been a really lovely uh, consequence of it. And and a lot of young men observed the same thing that I observed that around kind of the the end of primary school. You know that boys, it's 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 not okay to to cry. It's not okay to be vulnerable. You've got to be strong and stoic at all times. Any kind of vulnerability is is frowned upon. And it's not like anyone explicitly says that to boys, or not really. You would hope, but it's just this it's this expectation that shifts. Uh, and that was certainly the case for me in Yapoon at, at that point in time in the late nineties, uh, when when it was very clear what it meant to be a young man or, or the expectation of that. Uh, and it was, it was not being into anything girly. It was, it was being strong and tough and getting into fights and playing footy and not caring about anyone's feelings and, and particularly not caring about your own feelings. And that, I mean, you, you know, any, any armchair psychologist can see how that might manifest itself in really negative ways. Uh, it, it, I think it impacts how you think about yourself as a young man and your place in the world and what you have to offer. Um, but it particularly uh, distorts how you look at other young men. Uh, and there's, there's a deep insecurity that comes with that. Uh, and so any, any other young man that challenges that expectation or that ideal of what it means to be a young man in Australia is suspicious and frightening, and particularly so when it, when it comes to sexuality. And I'm sure things have changed a great deal, uh, and and I know they have in a lot of settings. But I think there's still, for young men, it, you know, it's not that they're secretly gay or deep down inside they're a little bit gay. I think it's just that there's this thing that that is not, it doesn't fit in the box of traditional masculinity or what it means to be a man, and therefore it's a bit frightening. And also at the time, the thing that compounded this was that. In, in the late 90s, there were no gay people on TV. Uh, the odd character in, you know, Fast Forward or something might have been the, you know, the really camp flight attendant who secretly hit on straight dudes and was this, you know, caricature who was there to be, you know, had the piss taken out of him. There were no gay characters in films. There were no out, really out celebrities. Uh, you know, Ricky Martin was still straight. It was a very different time. Uh, and so not only was I this thing that, that made blokes feel uncomfortable, but I just made everyone feel uncomfortable because it was, it was not the norm. No one knew much about this. The only knowledge of homosexuality in, in pop culture or the news was the AIDS crisis. And that's what I grew up with. That was my knowledge of gay men was that they got this horrible disease and died. Uh, and so that coupled with the issue of, of masculinity and me being everything that, that it wasn't, uh, made, made me unpalatable, I suppose, for, for these boys that I went to school with. And I'm not excusing what they did, but, but I understand it. Uh, and, and I understand, particularly in my day job, writing about men's mental health, I understand where a lot of the issues that confront Australian men still today come from. Wow, you've touched on so many things that I have separate questions for, so I'm going to try and... <laughs> I went on a tangent, sorry. No, 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 a good tangent, <laughs> a, very, a very good tangent, a very good tangent, which covered a lot of stuff. Um, look, so 
Yeah, you did make mention of that. And I did want to know about a couple of things. First and foremost, um, so the zeitgeist at the time, what, what uh, how that was shaping you. Because uh, you also mentioned uh, Ellen DeGeneres kind of being crucified from um, with that with a her sitcom at the time from coming out. And I wondered because the, the whole time, yeah, there was there was a profound sense of isolation that kind of was recurrent throughout Shannon. Like it was, it was, it was that you never had anyone to sort of converse with, even though you had some some lovely friends, and I wanted to talk about them in a sec. And I wondered if yeah, how much you thought that that kind of shaped you yourself and ultimately others like you because you're certainly not the only gay person. I mean, like perhaps within that sort of uh, environment, ostensibly, even though there was there was two examples, um, one of Tom and the really one of the most confronting, distressing scenes out of all of it was in the smoking section uh, part there, uh, uh, which I, I neither know fully um, that person's um, deal. I did really like you describing them um, at one point when you saw the photo in the yearbook and you said they have darkness inside them. And I was like, wow, what a apt way of describing that. Um, sorry, I myself am starting to answer my questions. Look, can we just get into first, into, <laughs> can we just get into delving first and foremost, how you yourself think that maybe that actually impacted other people in this sort of example, Shannon, because there was two that um, made, made some aggressively, uh, passes towards you how much did that then do you think was reflective of the zeitgeist and again this kind of rampant terror a lot i think um and and you know i've i've tracked down one of those characters uh and so i know what he's up to and and he's not he's not gay or or doesn't identify as gay um and and i'm not entirely surprised by that uh on one hand but but i think in terms of of him sort of exploring what he was about at the time and, and thinking a little bit about some of these feelings that he might've been feeling or thoughts in his head. Uh, it, again, it, it goes back to, you know, being gay was one of the worst things you could be. Uh, we, we didn't know much about it. It was derided. It was scary. Uh, it, almost every aspect of society was telling us that it, it was wrong. Uh, and, and so if you, if you're a young man or a young person and you're feeling elements of this identity, of course that's going to be horrifying and the last thing you want to be. That's certainly how I felt. I was terrified of, of what this meant for my life. I, I assumed I wouldn't be able to find a job if anyone knew or that I'd be fired, that I'd have to hide. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about the way that my voice sounded and and how I walked and uh, and how I might be able to change that so I could fit in and and not and not be seen as gay or not you know that no one would find out. Uh, I I didn't think that I'd find love uh, or that it would be a normal relationship, um, whatever normal meant. Uh, I didn't think that. Well, I certainly didn't think that I'd get married. I just I just had accepted long ago and up until quite recently, I have to say that that was never on the cards for me. Uh, much like starting a family. Um, and so as a young person, when you're looking out to the world and, and considering your place in it and what your life might look like, that's a, that's a terrifying and deeply depressing position to be in. And so for men who are probably straight, uh, but, but having some confusing feelings, 
Uh, I think the response to that is naturally very aggressive uh, and one of self-loathing and loathing anyone else that that looks like this thing that you desperately don't want to be. Um, and so in terms of the, the men in the book that, that I encountered uh, in a very negative way, um, again, I kind of understand it. I don't condone it and I certainly wish it hadn't happened. Um, but, but I can see that that fear uh, that I think manifested itself into, into darkness. And God knows, um, you know, I, I was feeling these things in a very supportive environment in terms of, you know, my mum is the best, my siblings are amazing. I had a very good, uh, small but tight group of friends. Imagine being a kid from the bush who grows up, you know, alone on a cattle station in a very manly environment whose expectations are laid out from the moment he's born, get married, have kids, stay on the farm, to then have these very confusing feelings about other men, of course you're going to react with with anger and, and probably violence. The thing that I found the most confronting and, and disturbing and frightening uh, throughout was uh, it would be so easy to then say, okay, well, it's 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 young men, um, you know, like a suffering from a cocktail of bravado, testosterone, all that. You know, they don't know any better. Their brain's still developing. You know, chemical imbalance going through it, all that. But then um, the, the 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 worst kind of um, treatment that you were subjected to for a large part of it, at least I thought, was a lot of it was teachers was was. Uh, the reading out of the note was the the Sunday school teacher, people not uh, not correcting using um, homophobic slurs and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, for me, and I was wondering if if you felt that again that that was that kind of ensured this order this sort of cyclical thing because it normalizes this sort of um, oppression really. And I was wondering if that was kind of like a something that you'd thought about. It's it's really funny. I. <laughs> After school and, and for the better part of 20 years, I kind of thought that, you know, I dealt with all of this. It didn't really bother me anymore. And it wasn't something that that I thought a great deal about. Uh, and, of course, I realised very quickly after starting writing the book that none of that was true. Uh, it was something that was often on my mind. The, the long-term consequences of it prevailed. Uh, and it was always there just below the surface. But the, the second thing that shocked me a lot was how I thought about this time of my life. Um, and one of the big things that, that I thought about in a new light as an adult delving back into this is the role that teachers played. Um, at the time, and, and it kind of that thought just hung around, I kind of I thought, oh, well, that's, that's the way things were. I probably brought it on myself a bit by being different. It was, you know, a product of the time. But really, no, <laughs> adults who were entrusted to care for and nurture and educate children, that, that's never changed. That, that's not a new uh, job description for teachers. That's, that's the way it's always been and it doesn't matter if it's an issue of race or disability or sexuality, uh, anything, gender. Um, I looked at the way I was treated and the complicit nature of, of a lot of teachers and even in a few cases, the active participation in my torment uh, through the light that it deserves to be looked at and that's with a sort of anger uh, and, and injustice. And so that was something that I didn't expect writing the book to have this total 180 on, on how I looked at central players in, in a pivotal part of my life. 
Uh, and so that was that was really interesting. I think that I think the era of time played a, a role, no doubt, in uh, in kind of a lot of the teachers being ill-equipped to deal with kids like me. Uh, you know, again, we didn't talk about sexuality and what it meant. We didn't talk about you know bullying even at that time. Um, but but at its core, the teachers that had a profound impact on me didn't do anything groundbreaking didn't you know reinvent the wheel they just cared they they showed empathy and understanding and kindness um which which should not be a difficult thing for teachers to do and if it is then i suggest that they're in the wrong job um you know the art teacher miss costopoulos who i wrote about in the book and that's her real name one of the few whose names i didn't change because i think she deserves to be a star um she was in her very first teaching role so not overly experienced, like some of the teachers I encountered who'd been in the system for decades and well-respected and, and seasoned. And she noticed what was happening to me immediately and, and took steps out of her day in, in a lot of cases to, to, to say something kind, to reassure me that it was all going to be okay one day, that I was going to find my place in the world, to, to include me in things and get me out of the hell that was the school ground by you know, making me make sets for the school musical so that I was occupied at lunchtime and after school. She drove me home on occasion. Um, you know, she would put, you know, a great song in, on the cassette and her tape deck of this crappy old car that she drove around. All things that, that were quite simple, but literally saved my life. They literally got me through another crap day where I was at the end of my tether and right on the edge. They gave me a, an element of hope. It showed me that there were adults and people in general that were capable of kindness and that it wasn't all, you know, this one hellish experience that was going to be my life forever. That's not difficult. And she even said, she read the book and reached out and said, what did I do? I don't understand what I did. And, and isn't that kind of everything that's wrong with my experience? That it wasn't a big deal, that she didn't see the profound impact, but it literally saved my life. It can't be overstated um, how mind-blowing that is and obviously how, how much the, it still impacts or uh, has shaped you today into the lovely man I see before me. Um, talk, tell me about, because, you, because yeah, I, did wanna, I didn't just want to fixate on the darkness and there is a lot of darkness, but there's these pinpricks of light in the form of human beings, dedicated professionals, because, yeah, I didn't just want to, bash teachers because conversely there are some, some amazing dedicated um, visionary professionals that you uh, that kind of did their, their best um, you endeared yourself to them and they did all that they possibly could I wanted to talk was her name Rhonda who was the, the that was her name the community yeah lady who got you into the fashion <laughs> show tell me a little bit about that because I wanted to talk a little bit about that oh. you, you sort of mentioned before you know the character in the novel Rhonda is like straight from central casting, the kind of person that you would write in a novel or in a film as the youth worker in a small town. Like she was just, you know, tie-dyed shirts, bright red hair, funky kind of ugly jewellery, uh, you know, loved a drumming circle, was was all about positivity and, and, you know, positive reinforcement. She was just the most wonderful soul. And she was kind of the sole person at, at the at the battlefront of anything that was was impacting young people in my town 
she ran the youth center, which was horribly underfunded in this ramshackle old building with bright purple walls, one wonky pool table and a couple of magazines. But she, she worked tirelessly day in and day out to, to try and get to kids before they fell off the rails to help kids escaping abuse and violence at home and put them in alternative housing uh, to help with drug and alcohol diversion, um, but also to provide positive avenues for, for local kids, something to do because, you know, we all know that, that the way a lot of kids get into trouble is when they're bored and there's nothing mm. else to do. And, and Yapoon was terrible for that. Uh, and so one of the things she did was organise the annual youth festival, which was everything, you know, Battle of the Bands, uh, workshops on art and surfing and drumming and whatever else. Uh, and I pitched this idea of doing a fashion show because I was obsessed with kind of anything glamorous and, and far removed from my world, um, which was glamour. Um, and so I, I enjoyed this idea of having a fashion show where local kids would would model these outfits we all put together and uh, and do kind of a mix of catwalk modeling and dance routines. Um, this is literally the gayest thing that, that I've ever done. Um, and so I, I threw together this show with Runda's full support and a little bit of her budget. Uh, and it was amazing. It was the best fun I've ever had. And probably the first time that, that I ever felt just kind of truly free uh, in, in many senses of that word. Um, you know, emotionally, I wasn't muting myself and trying to be less gay. I was, I was you know, I was twirling and squealing with gay abandon. Um, and, and creatively, I was free. I was, I was exploring these avenues that I kind of thought about and daydreamed about that, but never, never sort of explored apart from that. Um, and I was, I was free in, in the sense of being part of this little community, these, these you know, 12 odd girls that, that were part of the show and me working every day for months on putting together this vision uh, and it was executed not flawlessly, it was probably pretty shabby, um, but uh, but it was amazing. It was, you know, I've got, I've literally got uh, goosebumps now just talking about it uh, and feel a, a slight a slight bit of emotion just because it was, I don't know, it was an escape, it was an opportunity, it, um, it allowed me to be these things that I was terrified of being uh, or, or, or these traits that I was terrified of um, and, uh, and it was just wonderful fun. And again, it was, it was an adult uh, taking a chance on me, um, spending, paying a bit of attention to me and being super encouraging. Uh, and, and I got so much out of that night and the months leading up to it that, I, yeah, it was, was incredible. So, so profound, the impact that she had on me. Tell me, Shannon, about when you got pulled onto the stage, the surprising bit at the end with the, the claps and the applause, because it was the <laughs> first time uh, that I could remember in the entire reading of it. And it was obviously towards the end. And there's, you know, there's been about half a dozen other occasions where you've been singled out in the worst way imaginable uh, with every set of eyes in a room gathered looking at you um, in the most horrific circumstances. So I wanted to know the contrast and I want you to talk a little bit about the contrast, how you felt being brought on in the most kind of like positive way thus far. Well, it was, um, oh God, I think I might get a little emotional. And I'm not at all an emotional person anymore. Um, it, it, was the, it was the first time that I had been in, 
in the spotlight or in, in the glare of, of the public or anything. Uh, and it hadn't ended terribly. Uh, and so I was, I was terrified of this notion of, you know, being pulled up on stage at the end of the show to be acknowledged. And I'd made Rhonda promise that she wasn't going to do it. And of course she did it. Uh, and at the time I was furious. I was so, I was, I was, I think I said to her, you know, I whispered like, I'm going to kill you when this is over. Uh, Cause it was, it, it was, I was terrified of what was going to happen. Um, I didn't like the idea of being the center of attention by any stretch of the imagination. I was terrified of public speaking, uh, all of that sort of stuff. But then, uh, you know, mostly I was, I was worried that someone was going to yell something from the crowd or throw something and it was going to ruin this wonderful experience. Um, and, and thankfully it, it didn't happen. Uh, the room was full of support uh, and encouragement. And I'm so glad that she called me out and, and let me experience that for the first time. Uh, because again, that, that, that also lasted a long time, the impact of that. Um, and it showed me that, that there could be scenarios and examples where I could just be me. I could just do the things that I wanted to do and, and have ambition and hope and that it would be okay. Uh, and, and for a kid that had lived entirely in an environment where the opposite was true, um, that, that was such a wonderful moment. And that's why I'm emotional thinking yeah. about how that felt. I haven't actually, I, have, I haven't thought about it in those terms and I, and I certainly haven't thought about it um, as a moment. Um, so thank you for, thank you for letting me relive that. I love that. I love that moment. That was one of my favorites. And now I'm going to ask about a, a moment, which is kind of near there. And it's, it's a balance. It's one of the few, uh, moments I think throughout that I felt that there was the balance of the darkness and the light. It was, it was, it, it kind of it was fleeting. It was a flick of a switch. And it was when you interviewed Brooke Satchwell and people stuck their head in and, did what yeah. some people do, which is use... Anyway, I, I, can you please describe it in your words there, Shannon, because there was the what's happened and then what happened or what how Brooke reacted and how that kind of defined the scene. Yeah. It's sort of... It, it is a running joke with my friends and family that, you know, if there's a bizarre random experience or circumstance, I will find myself in the middle of it somehow... Uh, and that was the case with Brooke Satchwell coming to Yaboon. <laughs> um, and she was, at the time, like the biggest star on Australian TV and in Neighbours, of course, one half of Billionaire and the best couple that Neighbours has ever had. Uh, and she came to Yaboon for the Yaboon Youth Festival uh, and, and kind of was there, not for any particular point, I think just just to be a famous person in town, but then she would get up every sort of half an hour in the Battle of the Bands and talk about, you know, not binge drinking and, and you know, safe sex and following your dreams. And it was just, in hindsight, it's the funniest thing to imagine. Um, but she captivated the crowd's attention. She, she sort of used herself as an example of, you know, someone who grew up in the suburbs and was pursuing their dream and working really hard and that that's important. Anyway... I, uh, as an aspiring journalist and, and, uh, and celebrity lover, uh, managed to get myself an interview with Brooke Satchwell uh, to write a story for this online magazine that I used to submit little pieces for. Uh, and it was amazing. I, I had 10 minutes with her to ask whatever I wanted. Uh, it was going really well. 
um, for the most part. And she was super engaged. Again, like this, this first for me where this adult who was amazing and, and held in such high regard in my mind was so engaged, like didn't break eye contact once, was warm and, and leaning in. You know, I could read the positive body language from her. Uh, and then, as you said, uh, right at the end, uh, a group of kids who were all sort of gathered around the green room, as it was known that night, but was the footy, footy oval chain sheds, uh, were peering in through the windows and, and then a bunch of the boys, you know, yelled out the awful F word that, that I still hate and can't even bring myself to say really. Uh, and, uh, and that kind of, that, that deflated my, my uh, you know, how, how high I'd been flying in that wonderful moment and brought me back down to earth in a in crashing heat. Uh, and, and Brooke looked at and not acknowledged it as well, which kind of made me feel worse that, that she'd also, you know, that noticed and, and that's kind of maybe my, the impression that she'd been left with me uh, after this interview because um, it ended right after that. And, of course, uh, as, as it happened, I, again, found myself in a, in a bizarre scenario and ran into her backstage uh, and she called me over and, and we sat and had, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how long it was, um, but it was a long time, like maybe 20 or 30 minutes, had this really deep conversation about life. Uh, and and what she thought my life might be, uh, and it it was just astonishing to me that that she even cared that she that she even took the time, uh, and and that she w was so confident that that my life was going to be great and it was worth hanging in there through all the bullshit that it wasn't going to always be like this. She had concrete examples of mates of hers in Melbourne that had come from crappy little towns and were doing just fine and were happy and content and had found their people. That was what she said to me. They found their people uh, and, and you will do the same. You will find your place in the world. It's not always going to be like this, which is, uh, that's, I just believed it was. I believed that this was my life now. Uh, and again, it was one of she uh, she remembers the night. Um, I've run into her a few times since, um, uh, you know, for the first time on the Loki's red carpet. Um, and she remembered me straight away. And we had this really beautiful moment in this strange setting, uh, talking about that bizarre night. Um, and she remembers talking, but again, she doesn't remember it being this, this great monologue that that could potentially change a life. She doesn't remember it being a big deal because for her it wasn't, but for me it, it meant everything. Uh, it was just, yeah, wonderful. She's a wonderful person. And, um, and again, it was one of those moments that, that, that meant so much to me at the time and for a long time to come. All these acts of kindness have, have, have made me, um, well, they in, in, in the moment they saved me and gave me a reason to carry on and gave me a lot of hope. But in the long term, they made me the person I am today, which is someone who values the, the importance of kindness and knows the, the, the deep uh, power and danger of, of nastiness. Well, yeah. Um, what a, yeah. Uh, I already have my suspicions that uh, Satchel was a great human being, uh, but then having read uh, 14, now I know unequivocally that's the case. 
Um, and what a perfect way to like dovetail or set you on the right trajectory to then go to Connecticut. Cause I kind of wanted to, before we delve into you revisiting all this, I wanted to know how much going to Connecticut and having that exchange with Barbara and all of that, how much that kind of ultimately sort of uh, set the, set the pace and set the future Shannon mode from then on after. Oh, entirely. Um, <laughs> in so many ways, um, it made me love junk food uh, and burgers. Uh, it made me very, uh, <laughs> very confident uh, on return. I was, as my mum put it, a, a real little American because uh, I came back with with a slight accent and a, and a massive ego. Um, but it, but in all seriousness, I I came back from that year in the States, uh, living on the East Coast, spending a lot of time in Manhattan uh, with, you know, Barbara, my host mum, who was born and raised in Flushing, Queens, before moving to Connecticut, probably about a decade earlier, uh, was this, you know, brash and bold woman who just did not have time for people's bullshit, uh, as many Americans don't. Uh, and she was, she had an amazing sense of justice uh, and fairness. Uh, and, and, and again, as a lot of Americans do, in particular parts of America. Uh, and, and that rubbed off on me in a massive way. And so what I got out of America was not just a, a, an enormous sense of hope, having witnessed what my life could be like and what, what being gay in, normal, in the normal world might look like which was not a great deal of anything, and that suited me just fine. Um, but what America gave me was um, the sense of what was okay for, most, for me, what I deserved, uh, and it was not torment and bullying. It was not, uh, you know, that someone driving by screaming out the F word or throwing their Macca's thick shake at me, that that was not okay, that's not just how things are, uh, that, that I deserved more in life and, and that whatever I wanted to be was achievable without the, the constant running soundtrack, not just in my own head, but from, from the people around me that everything I was was horrible. Uh, and so, so to have that, that foundation and that sense of self um, at 16 and a half or whatever I was when I came home uh, was amazing because I came back to central Queensland for a period of time, not Yapoon, but to Rockhampton the next town over. And it, it was not perfect by any means, but I was not willing to put up with it. Mm. Uh, and so, so I, I fought back, not literally, but I, I demanded that the school take it seriously. I demanded that they formulate a bullying policy. I demanded meetings with Catholic Education and, and Education Queensland. I, I, you know, rattled cages at the mayor's office. I, <laughs> you know, I wanted to start a, a diversity club. Um, I, I started a little committee against, against hatred. Uh, I think it was called committee against hatred to fight racism in, in town, uh, and to provide a safe space for young people to talk about social justice. Um, none of that would have been possible without that experience because I would have been petrified to do it, but I went away. Uh, I saw what my life could be and, and, and what I as a person deserved, what all people deserve. Uh, and I came home and I thought, fuck it. I'm not settling for anything less. <laughs> oh, 
Wow, it's, 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 it's always a tough act to follow after you after you finish your your answers there because it's just <laughs> yeah. Um, the end of um, the book, uh, which was kind of like it was like semi semi you talking to yourself as well as kind of looking back at just you know some of your achievements that you've you've made thus far in your your career. Probably um, the not uh, not Joan Joan Crawford. Who was the Joan? I'm trying to figure who hated you, who you said the, the person that hated you. And I'm like, how do they hate you? But then who is it? It's not um, Jane Fonda. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I'm like, well, how? And I was like, oh, and then, you know, but all of that, all of that is just, I was like all these wild experiences that you've had with the, with the whole journalism vocation and doing all that, you know, falling in love, getting married. Um, your wedding sounded epic as well, by the way. Um, that sounded really, really cool. Good fun. Um, but like, <laughs> I, you know, it's it's resoundingly, prevailingly positive at the end, yeah. And enduringly, like it lasts after, like long after I finished reading it. But you know, that's you putting the final dot on that page and being in a certain frame of mind where it's you know, obviously looking back, you know, the scintillating good times. But I wondered, like, when you first took undertook writing this, you know, you know, what was the challenges or what was the biggest challenge that you faced? Because this is just, you know, like, I, you know, I'm getting emotional, you're getting emotional. We're mostly kind of like we haven't delved into all the really, really um, confronting stuff in there, and some of it floored me. Um, so, what did you have to do, Sean? How did you how, how did you get there? You know, was it was it a long, daunting process? Did you take time off? Did you churn it all out in one night and then cry? Like, how did that go? A, a little bit of, of the last one. Um, so, I like this this book is a total accident. I I didn't intend to write about myself uh, ever. I didn't think that I'd ever write a book. Um, I didn't think I'd be that lucky, uh, but but just by you know being in the right place at the right time, I managed to have a, a very brief conversation with a publisher uh, about me as a writer. They asked if I had any ideas, and I kind of had this in my head. I'd written an opinion piece at that time four years earlier about being horrifically bullied at school and why why it's important to support young people, uh, and the response to that had been overwhelming. Um, uh, both from people just being lovely, but but tragically from the mums of, of other young gay boys who hadn't survived like I had uh, and, and had taken their own life. And so those half a dozen stories had sort of haunted me for, for four years since I wrote it. And so the first thing that I that came to my mind when they asked if I had any ideas was was this story. Uh, and uh, and so that's kind of how it happened. And And then I had five months to write it. Uh, and uh, and didn't really have any annual leave left, uh, having taken a lot of trips before that. Uh, and so I, I continued working and wrote it uh, before work, after work, and every weekend, uh, and managed in in five months, almost to the day, to to hand in the manuscript. Um, and it was it it was both easy and extremely difficult. Um, you know, I, I never want to uh, talk up how difficult the writing process itself was, um, particularly when I go to, like, I'm on a panel next to someone who's written an amazing novel. Um, you know, I didn't have to research and the period of time and develop lots of characters and spend an enormous amount of time, you know, workshopping stuff. 
it was all in me uh, and and they're people that I grew up with. They're my family that I know and love. It's this town that for better or worse is, you know, it's it's burnt into my head and I can describe in in fine detail the walk from one end to the other. Um, I can probably count the blades of grass, you know, at the beachfront before the sand begins. So it wasn't difficult in that sense. Um, there were elements of, of the writing process that didn't come naturally to me as a journalist, particularly colour and detail. And so I worked with my um, editor at Simon & Schuster at the time, Brandon Van Over, who's amazing, uh, on all of these exercises on, on harnessing colour. Uh, and, and that was amazing. Like, that made me such a better writer um, and, uh, and made the book so much richer in, in, in those detail, particularly about the town and music and, and the pop culture of the time and, and my friends and the way we sort of lived our, our adolescent lives. Um, the, the trauma was extremely difficult because, like I said before, I kind of thought that I dealt with this. Um, you know, I thought it, it was going to make a cracking story uh, and, and it wouldn't impact me. But, of course, it's, you know, I lifted the lid off this deeply buried box of, of trauma that I've been carrying for 20 years uh, and, it, and it kind of exploded in a way. So there was a lot of therapy uh, involved in processing that um, but also just, just talking it through again and again and again. Um, there was a lot of time spent with loved ones um, because the reality of, of my life and this story is that a lot of the really horrible anecdotes in this book um, weren't known to my mum and my siblings. And my mum is, is my hero and favourite person and my siblings are my best friends. But these were too raw and too horrible to, to say out loud. And so, you know, the, the really, the worst stuff in this book um, was nothing, was something that, that the people closest to me didn't know, that I hadn't shared. So there were a lot of those conversations which were not pleasant. Um, there were, <laughs> there was lots of, um, lots of, of sort of self-care moments, which I didn't really know what that term meant. My idea of self-care was going to the pub. Um, and, uh, and that's not necessarily healthy when you're dealing with some, some epic emotional stuff. Mm. So there was a lot of meditation and spending time outdoors and, and quiet time with, with my husband and my best friends. Um, lots of, lots of talking with mum. Um, you know, in a way that I probably haven't spoken to her before, that, you know, about that period of time and what it meant for both of us then and how it's kind of impacted us both in the long term um, and, and kind of just, yeah, uh, so many things. It was, it was easy to, it was easy to write uh, because I'm a writer and, and the material was all there, but it was by far the hardest thing I've ever had to do on, mm. on multiple fronts. Uh, and, uh, but then at the end of the day, I, I went away uh, for a week to um, friends of mine have a, have a house on the other side of the Blue Mountains. I went away, no mobile phone reception, no internet, no television, and spent a week with the draft of the manuscript reading it and rereading it and cutting bits out and adding bits in and reading it and rereading it again. Uh, and by the end of that week, when I handed it in, it was as though I was a hundred kilos lighter. 
uh, and and I had said goodbye to this horrible period of my life, acknowledging the impact that it had and uh, and and the good and the bad things that came from it, um, but but letting go of of the kind of the the anchor around my neck, I suppose. Uh, and so in that regard, this might be the hardest thing I've ever done, but it is by far the best thing I've ever done. Definitely sounds like a very cathartic sort of experience, not without um, yeah. sort of uh, personal turmoil and suffering throughout it, but I suppose uh, all great artists, not so much art, it's, it's this cleansing of your soul, but, you know, all, all great art is suffering, but... Yeah, because I just, I just, the whole time I read it, Shannon, I was like, God, like, I couldn't imagine what you would have had to have gone through to actually revisit and uh, not just revisit. I mean, the memories themselves are still there, um, but to actually articulate it into words. And yeah, so that's a Herculean achievement there um, unto itself. So, um, Look, let's end with um, discussing again. This is at the, the end there. It was this, this really soaringly uplifting part. I wanted you to kind of expand a little bit upon it's, it's towards that might be the last sentence, but it's about how, again, it's kind of like somewhat you conversing of yourself or your younger self. And you say that you don't want to give it away. You don't want to give the surprises away. Tell me a little bit about that. What, what does that mean to you? Why did you not want to do that? Um. I guess it, it that sort of that came about, or that train of thought came about from from spending a lot of time with fourteen year old me, uh, which is something. Even though I might have thought about this period of my life a lot, um, aware of it or not, um, I hadn't I hadn't thought about me at fourteen a lot. I I I didn't really like who that kid was, um, and 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 it was quite unfair, really. Um, so having spent a lot of time with him, uh, um, I sort of, I, I, I thought about, gosh, you know, I wish I could go back and, and say, you know, you're going to do this and your life's going to be amazing and, and blah, blah, blah. But then I kind of thought, well, no, because I, I wonder how much of who I am is thanks to the past 20 years, for better or worse. Um, you know, I'm, because of that year and, and, and the years that followed, uh, and the impact that that had on me long term, I'm a more resilient person in a lot of ways. Um, I'm I'm quite stoic, uh, and and have a a kind of I don't know a, a a strong work ethic when it comes to working through emotions. Um, I I kind of barge right through them because that's what I've always had to do. Um, I'm I'm quite a empathetic person uh for better or worse sometimes worse i feel i feel things very deeply uh and i feel very wronged on behalf of other people a lot of the time um and i don't know if that would have happened if if i kind of if i knew the ending you know if i didn't have to walk the path that i've had to walk um and also just like so much of my life has been ridiculous like just experiences and adventures that i couldn't have possibly dreamt about you know, you know, in my wildest imagination, and I was prone to wild daydreams. Um, it's it's a common theme in the book. I would often escape to these these sort of foreign cities and and wonderful romances and and amazing you know glamorous uh, uh, activities and and I've kind of had it all. You know, I've I've been to places I never thought I'd go. I've 
I've I've lived, you know, pinch me moments time and time again that, you know, I, it's just, it's like, why, how am I here? This is ridiculous. For the kid from Yipun, uh, who was terrified of, of ever making anything for himself, here I am. Uh, and of course, you know, last but certainly not least was, um, was finding love in, in the most wonderful way uh, with my husband who, you know, I think is my greatest achievement because I have no idea how I landed mm. him and kept him. Um, but mm. uh, but it, he's just wonderful and, and, um, and I just, yeah, you know, again, n- nothing is perfect. It's not all rosy all the time, um, but, but life is pretty, pretty bloody good and, uh, and, and I'm so happy and, and I feel very privileged um, and, and I would want young Shannon to, to experience it all blow by blow uh, over the past 20 years because, um, yeah, it's been a wild ride. Yes, it has. Um, all I can do is say thank you so much, Sean, for sharing your story. It wouldn't have been easy. Um, I can't hazard to guess how hard it would have been for the for you to live through it first and then to come back, revisit it, to write it. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, you won. You killed it, Shannon. They did their best to try and do their worst and it didn't work on you. Uh, I went through a bunch of shit dealing with some bullies when I grew up. So I know what it's like, man, and you've you've killed it. So, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, 14 was not an easy read <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but it was an important read. Um, I'm so glad that I was privileged enough to be able to read it and to talk to you today. The privilege is all mine. Thank you so much. It's, this has been wonderful. Thank you again, mate. Everyone, that was Shannon Malloy discussing with me his debut memoir, 14, which I cannot recommend enough. That is now available from the good folks at Simon & Schuster Publishing House. So get your copy. Uh, again, if anything discussed in this episode has prompted anything within you at all, any sort of emotions or anything in which you need to discuss, I have included the Lifeline link to their website, which has a range of different professional contacts that you, you can reach, uh, which I do but please, please ask you to do so. Um, again, a big round of applause and huge thanks to Shannon for being so open and honest about his story. Um, and yes, please stay tuned. Follow The Right Way if you haven't already. There's a lot more episodes coming up, as there is always. Uh, but yes, in the interim, I'm still reeling from it. Uh, I really can't thank Shannon enough for talking to me tonight. Um, and yes, so I hope that you enjoyed the episode. I found it to be edifying as well as uplifting as much as I did. And thank you very much for listening. And again, thank you so much to Shannon Malloy for talking to me about 14.